Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. So we've been looking at the book of Acts, God's kingdom mission for the church. We're just doing a pause here today. Last Sunday, I just had a sense that I was supposed to pause and share some of my story. Lessons from the desert. We're going to talk about that. We've been looking at Saul's conversion, his new calling, his new community, the gospel going into all the nations. And normally we walk through a passage of scripture together, which is what we do when we're together or when we're in groups and homes or when we're with the Lord privately, maybe with a friend. We value the word of God and we see it as a privilege, the idea that you and I get to as much as we want sit at the feet of Jesus with our Bibles open. Listening to his word is pretty amazing. Today, I just felt compelled to share some of our personal story, Amanda and me and our family, some lessons from the desert, and I reference that at different times, but today I just wanted to linger with it a little bit, because I'm guessing that we have some of us here that feel stuck in a spiritual desert. I'm not alone, and that some of us are dealing with this trend of deconstruction. I'm going to get back to that word in a little bit. We're going to talk about it. Basically having our faith challenged in deep ways. And there may even be some of us who are dealing with anger and disappointment with God. And so what we're going to do is talk about some of these things. And so I'll be weaving specific moments from my story, from our story together with reflections on scripture. And I'm going to do I'm going to lay it out. I'm going to lay three experiences out that Amanda and I had during our desert season, roughly 2009 to 2016, and I'm going to ask you to reflect on your life as I'm reflecting on my life, and I'm going to encourage you to cling to Jesus in new ways and to think about how might I trust God and seek the help of Jesus with fresh vigor today. And what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna offer really what I call kind of an assessment of our own experiences in conversation with scripture, but not just an assessment, I want to offer you an action plan. So if some of these things ring true with you, I want you to walk away with some antidotes. I don't want to just diagnose it and describe it, but I actually want to share some of the ways out of these situations that Amanda and I found ourselves in for a number of years. And I just want to say up front, I've been pretty transparent about it. We crawled through the desert. It wasn't like we marched through with great faith. I mean, we were dry. We were alone. We felt distant from God. And we did a lot of complaining. I've shared about our walks, now we take prayer walks, then we took complaining, moaning, groaning, griping walks. 
And as I look back on this time, I really would summarize. It wasn't just like a spiritual desert, but it was like being swallowed up in the belly of a beast. Maybe kind of like Jonah when he was swallowed up in the belly of that whale where the stomach acid goes to work on you. And I felt the work of that stomach acid on my mind and my heart. And what I learned, reflecting back on this time in the belly of the beast, is that God uses the stomach acid, that acidic assault on your mind and your heart and your faith to actually make you stronger. And I'm going to be talking about someone named Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche. He was a German philosopher, and there's a a saying that he's famous for, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But the truth is, long before Nietzsche lived and died, that principle is found in the Bible, isn't it? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. If you think about the book of Job, we'll be referencing him in a little bit, but that dude was nearly ground to dust. He lost everything. His wife turned on him. His body was covered in boils. His children died. He lost all his life. He lost everything. And in the end, the stomach acid of that experience strengthened him, and he was able to look to God and say, though you slay me, I trust in you. Though I lose everything, I'm clinging to you, and you are marvelous and beyond my mind, beyond my ways. So we find it in the story of Job. We also find it with Joseph, his story, where he was abandoned and imprisoned. He lost everything, but the Lord restored him. And what does Joseph say in chapter 50 of Genesis? What you intended for evil, God has used for good in my life. And how about Jesus? He literally was killed. But through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, he was made stronger. And he is the strongest in an unparalleled way. So what I want us to do as I share these things, I want us to picture the shadow of the cross falling across everything that we're talking about. The crucified, resurrected Jesus. And some of this stuff may come across as a little heavy or depressing at times because, friends, it was depressing. (laughs) We were depressed. Is it okay to be depressed? I sure hope so. But the note of resurrection runs through the whole thing. Jesus raised us up, resurrected us. We're still in the process of that, and he can do the same for you. There's nothing that you can throw at him. You can't be in a deep, dark place that he can't come and get you. And so that's what I'm hoping today is that you hear hope and that you're encouraged that the Lord can bring you through any desert. So the first thing I want to talk about here, and before that I just want to pray, Jesus, I thank you for your story. And I thank you that you suffered more than anyone and you can come to the aid of everyone. And there is no person, no situation no argument that can withstand you. And so I pray, Jesus, in our time just looking at the scriptures and talking that you would meet every person in here. We cling to you, Jesus, and pray in your name. Amen.
So if we're looking at lessons from the desert, the first thing that Amanda and I experienced was disconnection from the church. Anyone in here ever watched one of those videos? Can be pretty brutal, but have you ever watched footage of a lion hunting its prey? Anybody seen that? If you look at it, the first thing the lion does is spot the prey. And oftentimes it's an antelope who's struggling for some reason, and that lion begins to stalk that antelope, moving in on it foot by foot, slowly but surely, eyes riveted on that antelope, and eventually the lion isolates that antelope and eventually cuts it off from the rest of the herd. And once that antelope is separated from the herd, the lion then attacks fiercely. Big claws, big teeth, tearing into that antelope and devouring it. And friends, that is like the enemy that we face. Turn to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, 8 speaks about a lion seeking to hunt the prey And that prey is you and me. It's a rich passage here. The Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5, and really verses 6 through 10 explain things, but I'm just going to dive right into verse 8. The Apostle Peter is looking at a church plant in Rome, and he is telling them, Discipline yourselves. Keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Then it goes on to say, look at verse 9, resist him, steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Then look at verse 10. And after you had suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. So you even find the antidote here, the answer that Peter lays out for the Christians that are to be disciplined and alert, knowing that this enemy is prowling around ready to devour us. Friends, there's no substitute for the local church. And if you are under attack, which you are, because you are a Christian living in the world, and there are seasons where it's more intense than others, but let's be clear here, you are in battle. You are in wartime until Christ returns. It's the nature of life. And so there is an enemy that wants to separate you to separate me from the rest of the herd. And if you are inclined to separate yourself from the herd, you are playing right into his plan. Think about that for a moment. If you let the prowling lion separate you from the rest of God's people, you are basically saying, I'm going to make your job easier to attack me and to devour me. That's heavy, isn't it? But think about that next time 
that you're offended at the church or offended at a sister or brother and saying, I'm out. As a matter of fact, I'm out for the fourth time. This is my fourth church where I've been offended and left with unresolved issues. Friends, you are playing right into the enemy's hand, his plan. And we succumb to that. Amanda and I were desperate to find a local church, and I could go on and on about it. It was very difficult being an outsider to not be from Georgia, the town where we were. Beautiful people, amazing, but if you're not from there, it's tough breaking in. So we would go to Sunday school class, and we would go to people's homes, and, but it was always one of these. We were lonely. I've joked before is that I would say, do we have social repellent sprayed on us? Do we stink in some way that we're not detecting? But we got disconnected from the church. We ended up driving 85 miles each way to a church, a former vineyard in Atlanta. That's how desperate we were. We tried to get there as often as we could. But the truth is we got disconnected from the church And friends, if you think that you can find a substitute for the local church, a parachurch organization, a house church only, I can tell you these things are limited in what God can do. What do they lack? They lack mutual submission to one another in the grind of weekly, monthly, daily life. There's something that God has designed in the local church, as messy as it is, the Lord knows that we need to submit to one another, to watch over one another, to be accountable to one another. Is it hard? You tell me. Is it difficult to be involved in long-term relationships in a local church? What do you think? Yes, it is difficult. But what's your option? I'm going to do a parachurch thing where I can be kind of 40% connected and people can know me 40%, but I'm certainly not accountable to those people. My point is not to step on toes at all. It's to challenge you to look into the Bible and see the way that God has designed it, and it's called the local church. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 15 God has designed it so that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are baptized into union with Christ and into his body, his church. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 15, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Look at verse 15 here. Paul intuits some of the arguments that we present to the Lord. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And frankly, in our current day, there's a lot of folks who say, I do not belong 
to the body. I belong to myself or I belong to a group where I'm comfortable and challenged to a degree, a measure. But the truth is, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called and baptized into his body, into his church. And the notion that you can be a Christian and do it alone does not align with scripture. You're being deceived, just as we were. We desperately wanted the body, and Amanda said over and over again during those years, she said, I will never be the same. Whenever we get to be a part of the local church again, I have passion and compassion for the outsider. And so, friends, I'm just telling you what Scripture says, right? The international, interracial body of Christ, there's nothing like it on the planet. Brings together diverse individuals into one spiritual family, and there is no other organization in the world like the body of Christ to do all that the church does. No business, no political party, no athletic team. Would you agree? Now, I will say this. I get it. I understand people get hurt by the church, which is made up of people like you and me, sinful, dysfunctional people. And some of these hurts and wounds are very serious. As I was reflecting on this this week, I was thinking about a young lady, a student at the college where I taught, and she one day in our office hours shared that her pastor had molested her. And she was dislocated from the church and never wanted to go into another church. She shared that with me. And I mean, I still, I, I haven't recovered from seeing what that did to that young lady's life. And so I understand that there are all kinds of wounds that can be inflicted by people in the church, right? But have you been able to find a church or have you ever heard of a church that doesn't have sinful or dysfunctional people in it? (laughs) Jay, have you? No. It, It doesn't exist until we are in heaven in his presence. Now, again, I'm not making light of devastating things that can happen and maybe have happened to you. But do you believe in the Lord's goodness and his mercy and ability to heal? I sure hope so. Maybe we're in process in that. But this, again, is the only organization in the world that has the backing of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Almighty to bring unity and health and healing. There's nowhere else. And so, friends, we are called to the local church until the day we die. So if you look around here, we get to love and put up with one another and embrace one another, and work through hard stuff. Wallace is smiling over here because we keep thinking, when, Lord, when does it get easier? When do we have to have, you know, when do we not have difficult conversations? And the Lord is smiling, saying, not until you die. So we are committed here to deep connection with the body of Christ and working through our stuff with one another. I'm saying I'm broken, I'm dysfunctional, so are you, so let's work through it together, right? And not have that mentality that I'm out of here. When it gets really tough, 
and I got something to work through, I'm out of here. Where are you going to go? You can go to another church where none of that happens. You're delaying the process. You might as well root down, get comfortable, and work through your stuff with one another. Because I'm telling you, if you go to another church across town, there's going to be broken, sinful, dysfunctional people there, and then you'll be there as another broken sinner. It'll happen again. So again, I want you where the Lord calls you. I'm not saying you have to be here if you're visiting, if you're new, but root down in the local church. Amen? Second thing here that happened in our desert season. How are we doing? Doing okay? The antidote to disconnection from the church is deep connection with the body of Christ. Right? A second thing that we dealt with in our desert season of dryness and distance from God, spiritual darkness, was I personally was reading and listening to toxic material. And I got to share that with Amanda. Great work of a husband, right? I would come home and share what I had taught, what I had read, and so we got to share misery in that. And I've asked her forgiveness for that before. But what's strange is the Lord kind of set it up. As a college professor, I had to teach certain things in certain classes and I was wearing two hats. So on one hand, I was running a pre-seminary program, and so we would teach the Bible and theology and those kinds of things that I felt much more at home with, comfortable with, that brought life. But then I also had to teach the science of religion. And, you know, dealing with the lenses, like studying world religion through anthropology and philosophy and some of these things. And some of it was actually really rich and faith strengthening and deepening, but some of it was like handling nuclear material, which I haven't done before, but I have figuratively. And it just began to pollute and damage my soul. And what I began to find out was a number of these scholars, really over the last couple hundred years, were overconfident in human reason. Each one of them thought that through their mind, through their intellect, they could understand all things and explain God right out of the picture. Some of them were very skeptical. Some of them were downright hostile to religion, including Christianity. And these are folks, again, the point is just for some of you who may be dealing with this, some of you may have read these things, so I'm putting these things out there, people like Freud, Marx, a guy named Hume, another guy named Durkheim. And these readings were very difficult to read. I almost wish, you ever wish you had take backs? Oh, can I take that back? I wish I would not have read that. I wish I would not have seen that. And so I was living in a constant cycle of, can I, can I get out of this? Please, Lord. It is damaging me so over time, teaching and handling these things without being rooted in a local church clouded my soul. And again, it was paradoxical. It was, there was a tension because 
teaching the Bible to students and students from China and other parts of the world. It was awesome on one hand, but then I have to shift gears and go back to Hume and Descartes and Kant and some of these philosophers, and it was brutal. It was the stomach acid that I referenced earlier. Now, some of us may not read those guys, and I don't recommend it, actually, even for bedtime reading if you have insomnia. Probably not a good idea to pick those folks up. But there are some more uh, accessible and more popular people, and I'm going to name a couple, all right? And again, my point is not to shame or blame anyone, but I want to name them and call them out because they're toxic. And one of those people is Rob Bell. So if you've read Rob Bell or you got some Rob Bell on your shelf, I want to challenge you to not read Rob Bell. And he's, again, my point is to diagnose and assess but also give antidotes, right? I'm naming a couple people because in conversations over the last decade especially, these two names keep coming up over and over and over again. They're toxic. Now, I'm not judging either one of them. I'm discerning. And Rob Bell needs the Lord's mercy just like I do and just like you do. So I'm not judging him as a person, not judging his heart, but I'm judging his books and the works that he's gotten himself into. You know him, former pastor of Mars Hill in Seattle. He's a popular podcaster. And why is he problematic? Well, right now, he's troubled by the narrow biblical idea that salvation is found in Christ alone. And in his book, Love Wins, he's basically representing an ancient heresy of universalism. That God wins in the end by saving everyone through love. So Rob Bell, find someone else, and I'm going to suggest someone else here in a little bit. A second one is Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan priest and author of popular books on spirituality, especially the divine dance. And I'm probably stepping on some toes right now, but that's my job as your pastor, to detect and discern things and to call it out. And again, I'm not throwing stones. I'm saying avoid these folks and read other things. Um, This guy is out to promote a more mystical understanding of Christianity And he's deeply influenced by Eastern religious traditions, Buddhism, Hinduism. This is a direct quote from Rohr. I want people to fall in love with the divine presence under whatever name it comes. Does that sound like a Christian author? No, it's not. And also, he repackages Trinitarian and Christological heresies mixing them up with new age ideas like the cosmic Christ and these things. So friends, I love you. I care for you enough to call those people out because they oftentimes lead to what's called deconstruction. Some of you go, I know exactly what you're talking about. Other people say, that sounds like a gnarly word. So Reading authors like this can often lead down a road of deconstructivism or deconstruction. Is it okay if I just geek out for a moment here? Because I think we need to know that term is just tossed around all over the place, and I think we need to address it. So 
It's an eclectic school of thought, a mishmash of things, and there's a guy named Derrida, D-E-R-R-I-D-A. He died in 2004, but he really started and launched a movement of deconstructivism, and he was a French philosopher, and what he did, he was focused on the complex nature of language. So he was obsessed with language and the way that it worked. And he was deeply influenced by Friedrich Nietzsche, a German philosopher who died in 1900. And so really, the point of deconstructivism is to, if you're a Christian, is to read some books and to have deconstruction go to work on you and your faith and basically challenge and deconstruct it, oftentimes tearing down the edifice, the structure, and then perhaps rebuilding it. But friends, it's a cul-de-sac. It's a dead end. If you think, I'm going to do just a season of deconstruction here, I'm going to have my faith deconstructed, I'm going to take out the Apostles' Creed and let Derrida go to work on the Apostles' Creed, usually you don't come out of that cul-de-sac you get deconstructed and you lose your faith. I almost did. And by the grace of God and his mercy, I was hanging on, as I've shared before, by a fingernail at times, by a thread. And what I learned during those times is actually the Lord had a hold of me. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm just barely hanging on. I'm deconstructed to the nub. I'm not even sure I can believe in these things. I'm so deeply challenged. And I felt the Lord's goodness toward the end. I've got a hold of you. I've had a hold of you the whole time. All you have to have is a little faith of a mustard seed, frankly. And I will water it and bring you through. And then you, in turn, will be able to comfort and encourage other people. And I said, really? I said, yes. So friends, some of you are right in the thick of deconstruction. And maybe you're in a group or maybe you go have coffee with someone who's been reading some of these things and they're sharing about deconstruction. There is a way out. There is. And thankfully, in the desert, I ran across a guy named Rakur, and his last name, if you want to look it up later, his name's Paul Rakur, R-I-C-O-E-U-R. He died in 2005, but he had a way of dealing with deconstruction. And he came up with this model that he called the second naivete. And he, and what does it mean to be naive? It means to be childlike and to trust again. And so Paul Ricoeur said there is actually a way to read the Bible and to practice Christian faith again with childlikeness. And he laid out this beautiful life-giving model that he learned from his own experience and from the experience of his students that he taught. And he said, most of us go through something and it's a phase called the pre-critical. And that means that everything's pretty black and white. You're really not analyzing things. You just, it's a, a long stretch where you just take everything at face value. You read the Bible and you say it 
says what it means and means what it says, and there's not a whole lot of challenge going on in that. There's nothing wrong with that at all, but oftentimes, especially in this American context, you don't just hang out in that phase. You end up in what Rakura called the critical phase. And he likened this to a desert. Are you with me? I'm trying to lay some of these things out in a way that will be helpful. Because some of you, some of us, are in this second season or phase called the critical or the analytical, where analysis becomes the key. And so you don't just read the Bible and say, I believe it. You say, why does it say that? Do I believe that it says that? You examine the text. You look at troubling things in the Bible, and you begin to see, there's a lot of gray out there. It's not just black and white. And friends, this is what happens oftentimes when you go to college or you get around some teachers that are into deconstruction. This hits you right in the face. Anybody? And what Paul Ricoeur said is there are bones of Christians who get stuck and their bones are strewn across the desert of deconstruction, the critical, the analytical. And listen to what he says. He says there is a third phase, praise Jesus, and it's called the post-critical. It's after the analysis. It's after the obsession with critiquing and thinking. And he says, listen, he says, you can be called again beyond the desert of criticism, of analysis. It is a beautiful model. And I mean, it hit Amanda and me right in the heart. We just felt like we were stuck in analysis and critiquing things and being challenged. And what Rakura said is you can be a child again. You can actually approach the Bible and be naive again and to be filled with wonder and to say, ah, your word, I even love it more than before because I've had the acid of doubt and skepticism and unbelief go to work on me. Lord, your word, there's nothing like it. I want to meditate on it day and night. It is more powerful than I've ever seen, and you have all the answers. And so, friends, those of you that have been in deconstruction, you've been stuck in the desert of criticism and analysis, you can be called again. Amen? And that call continues. Friends, I try to be really open about these things. I am still working it out. How do you feel? you got a pastor that's still working it out. And so I pray regularly, Lord Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And he's able to do that. And so I'm standing here today out of the belly of the beast, stomach acid working on me for years to say that you can read the word of God and trust with deeper faith, deeper confidence, and trust that the Lord will use all things and he'll bring you through the desert. Amen? So what I, what I wanted to hear before we look at the third thing and wrap up is I want to encourage you to steer away from certain authors like Bell and Rohr and to read the classics, to read the old stuff, 
Time is limited. Your life is short. So rather than hanging out with Rob Bell or Richard Rohr, I want to encourage you to go back. You can find all these works for free online. You can buy books. But read the Christian authors of the first five or 600 years. There is nothing like it. You can go and look at Mardell, the top 25 or whatever, but I'm telling you, if you will go back and read certain folks, and again, I'm trying to stay out of college lesson mode, but I want you to think about Athanasius on the incarnation. How do you spell that? A-T-H-A-N-A-S-I-U-S. You read what he says, 300 years after Christ on the incarnation, and you will never forget it. He was a theologian and a pastor, and he wrote on the incarnation for the heart of the church, and it was powerful. There are others I could recommend. Maybe I'll do a a podcast on this or put some things online, but go to the good stuff, right? If you're offered, say, 15 boxes of sweet bubbly rosé from Target, or two bottles of French wine from a family winery that's been making wine for 400 years, where are you going to go? So I'm inviting us to go to those rich classics, and they're accessible for everyone. They're written for the whole church for all time. So go to the good stuff. Go to the vintage that's fixated on the apostolic teaching, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. That is what's going to get us through in the coming days. Hey, can you give me a few extra minutes for this third point? Is that all right? The third thing. You know what? I'm going to say this. One guy, and if, if I'm speaking a language that interests you, write down Tom Oden, O-D-E-N. He was actually from Oklahoma. And he went on to Yale and all of these schools to be a big dog theologian and started to lose his faith and get disillusioned. And he had someone challenge him to read the Christian classics. While he was a professor, he did and it changed his life. And he had a dream while this was going on. And in the dream, Tom Oden, this theologian from Drew University, saw his tombstone And on his tombstone, it said, Tom Oden, who made no new contribution to Christian theology. And he woke up and he said, Lord, that's my calling. I do not want to be fascinated with the new and the novel and coming up with some insight. I actually want to represent and pass down the traditions of Jesus the traditions of the apostles, and that's what I'm devoting the second half of my life to. And so he devoted 30 years to writing on the Christian classics, and it will rearrange your life. So I, in the spirit of Tom Oden, am saying, let's turn from a fascination with the new. What's the newest thing? What's the newest prophetic thing? What's the new? You know what? Let's get back to the old, to the clock. Get lost in the scriptures. Give yourself to the people who would only write about Holy Scripture. Really, to read the classics is basically to read meditation on Scripture and the application of it into our lives. Friends, this is what gets us through in the coming days. Not the cotton candy of popular Christian theology. All right, last thing. 
anger and disappointment with God was something that Amanda and I dealt with. And so along with the other things, disconnection from the church and ingesting toxic materials, our friends kept moving away from our neighborhood in Georgia. We felt trapped there. I had job opportunity after job opportunity with closed doors, one after another. We couldn't get out while all our friends moved away. And in the middle of this, it was like we had our heads barely above water. Our noses were like peeking up like this. And then Amanda got diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis, just like her mother had. And so we went from barely surviving to flat out angry with God. Where are you? Are you even there? Are you sovereign? Are you good? And we tried to continue to pray and read the Bible and connect, but it was very difficult. And at this point, we were crawling on hands and knees in the desert with no spiritual water in sight. And we went into some dark and bleak places in our hearts. And we were reduced to thinking certain things. And we, one of those things was we would talk about the fact that everyone suffers. To exist is to suffer. And we began to deal with the mystery of suffering and the fact that it can't be easily explained. And different people propose different explanations of this, but it came down to us saying, are we going to suffer with God or without God? Anybody else? We were at that place, down at the base level, that's where we were. Are we going to say, we're out, we're done, and therefore we are going to suffer alone And frankly, that helped us to think, you know what? We are going to suffer with God because every single person, every Christian will suffer. It's what the scriptures teach, right? Different forms of suffering. For some of us, it's physical. Some of it's mental. Some of it's emotional. Life in a broken world just deals suffering for all of us. And so we said we're going to suffer with God. We're going to draw from his resources because we don't have anywhere else to go, right? That's what we said, isn't it? We said we don't have anywhere else to go. So I want to ask you, are you angry or disappointed with God? Have you thought, I may give up on God and this whole following Jesus thing? That's okay. And it really helps you understand in those moments that Oftentimes, behind every atheist and agnostic is a disappointed person. There's some brokenness there, some unresolved issue. You don't just say, I'm going to become an atheist or an agnostic. Most of the time, it's people who are angry and disappointed with God, and therefore they have to try to eradicate him from the universe. But it doesn't work that way. The Lord can save any atheist, any agnostic, any one of us struggling with deep and dark 
seemingly insurmountable issues, the Lord can save us and rescue us. So what I want to encourage us to do is don't give up. Cling to the crucified Jesus. And with this last thing, I would suggest that you consider some confession. Find a friend, a trusted confidant, and let him see. Let him in. I am furious with God. I am angry with God. I'm disappointed with God for these reasons. Can you let me share it? with you. I'm going to bear my soul and confess to you and bring it all into the light. And chances are you'll probably sit with someone and say, you know what, my turn. I'm dealing with the same stuff. And then you can cling to Jesus together. You may need to go through inner healing and deliverance. Why don't we stand up? Thank you for giving me a little bit extra time. I went through inner healing and deliverance at Bridgeway Church two years ago. And we have that going on here. We have Sozo, we have Inner Healing and Deliverance Ministry, we have Confession, we have groups. Friends, don't try to go at it alone. Doesn't work that way. I'm gonna end with this verse. And if the ministry team can come up as well, I'm gonna end with Matthew 11, 28 to 30. The words of Jesus, the crucified Lord. And this is what he says. Said this to Amanda and me, says this to you. Come to me, all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So Lord Jesus, I, I thank you for this church. I thank you for brothers and sisters here that we are committed to your body. I thank you that you have a hold of us. And I do, I pray, Lord, that in the coming days you would open up the scriptures to us, that we would find the word of God in childlike ways again, that your word would speak to us, that you would meet us through your word, that you would bring healing and deliverance. We pray in your name. Amen.